On April 4th, 1817, Mrs. Worrell rushed out of church after the closing prayer and headed to a nearby inn. The night before, a young woman had been brought to her house in great distress. She was a vagrant and a foreigner, though no one could determine where she came from or what language she spoke. Mrs. Worrell arranged a room for the woman at a local inn and promised that she would call on her the next morning. But Mrs. Worrell had reservations that the stranger wasn't from distant lands as she claimed to be. At the inn, Mrs. Worrell immediately took the young woman into a private room. There, Mrs. Worrell gently accused her of being an imposter. She suspected the beggar did in fact speak English and asked her to confess from one woman to another. The young woman shook her head, confused. Frustrated, Mrs. Worrell warned the woman that, were she found to be an imposter later on, she would be thrown in prison for the rest of her life. Then, she looked into the dark, mysterious eyes of the beggar woman and implored, Who are you? At this, the young woman burst into tears. Caribou! she cried. Caribou! Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. Last week, we covered the adolescence of Mary Wilcox, detailing her traumatic experiences as a beggar and her first attempts at fraud. This week, we'll discuss Mary's transformation into Princess Caribou, exploring how she created a character that fooled an entire town and then salvaged a life for herself after the truth emerged. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Before she claimed to be a princess from a foreign land, Mary Wilcox was just a girl from a poor family in Witheridge, Devonshire. Born in the late 18th century, Mary suffered from a deeply restless disposition as a child, keeping her from schooling and a consistent job. At 18, Mary ran away from home and begged her way across the country. But malnutrition and lack of sleep soon took hold, and young Mary collapsed on the side of the road. There, 
a wagoner picked Mary up and took her to London, where two women brought her to a hospital under the cover of night. She spent several months undergoing a series of painful treatments for what 19th century doctors called brain fever. When she was finally released, she was placed in a job as a servant for a local family. Mary's eccentric tendencies and habitual lying kept her from holding any one job for long. Things grew worse for Mary when she fell in love with a man who she says was named John Baker. Baker impregnated the 24-year-old woman, then abandoned her in London. Destitute and alone, Mary had no choice but to turn her newborn into the foundling hospital. Unfortunately, the infant passed away in October of 1816 at only eight months old. After his death, Mary turned once more to begging, although this time she wore an unusual disguise and spoke in a made-up language to draw in more attention and cash. Eventually, in April of 1817, she wound up in Almondsbury, Gloucestershire, where she would make her turn as Princess Caribou, officially becoming one of the most infamous impostors of the 19th century. On the night of April 3, 1817, a cobbler opened his front door to find 26-year-old Mary Wilcox, clothed in black, nervously begging for money. She appeared tired and hungry. In her hands, she clutched a small bundle that contained all of her worldly possessions, a few halfpennies and a small piece of soap. But unlike other beggars he had met, this woman was dressed decently well. Her black dress and black turban were unusual, but undoubtedly of good quality, as were her leather shoes. Confused, the cobbler decided to take the woman to see a man named Mr. Overton, the overseer of the poor. He typically arrested vagrants, dooming some of them to punishments of prison sentences, manual labor, and even extradition to Australia if they were from a foreign land. But he was perplexed by Mary. Her mysterious language and dress sparked curiosity, and he couldn't bring himself to arrest her. With his interest piqued, he remembered that Mr. Worrell, the county magistrate, had a servant who claimed to be fluent in foreign languages. Mr. Overton promptly brought the beggar to the Worrell residence, otherwise known as Knoll Park, so that the servant could speak to the beggar in her own language. For the third time that night, Mary held up her disguise in front of a group of strangers as they attempted to determine who she was. After looking the young woman over, Mr. Worrell ordered his servant, a Greek man, to step forward and listen closely to her speech so that he might tell them all what language she was speaking. Unfortunately, the servant was just as stumped as the rest of them. The men and women looked at each other, unsure what to do next. They didn't want to accidentally arrest a woman who may be of high stature in her home country, but they also didn't know how to learn more about her. It was too late to involve anyone else in the examination that evening, so the Worrells found the woman a room at a local inn for the night. They sent a couple of servants along with her, and Mrs. Worrell promised to call on the woman the next morning. After arriving at the inn, Mary kept up her act, though she was more outgoing there than she was at the Worrells. At one point, she excitedly pointed to a painting of a pineapple, saying, Anana! Somehow, she indicated to a servant that it was the fruit of her homeland. 
While the servants believed this to be a clue about where the young woman was from, it didn't actually narrow anything down, as there are dozens of countries in which the word ananas means pineapple. The landlady at the inn offered to give Mary dinner, but she refused, accepting only a cup of tea. Before drinking her tea, Mary placed a hand over her eyes, knelt on the floor, and repeated a prayer several times. She repeated this process before having a second cup of tea, insisting on washing the cup herself in between refills. Mary also initially refused to sleep on a bed, appearing confused by the piece of furniture altogether. It took one of the innkeeper's daughters demonstrating how to lie down for her to climb in and go to sleep. Mary closed her eyes and drifted off to sleep, relishing the success of her masquerade. The next morning, Mrs. Worrell arrived and interrogated the young woman. Though she was sympathetic towards the stranger and curious about her past, Mr. Worrell had warned his wife to be more cautious. But when Mary began to weep, pointing at herself, crying, Caribou! Caribou! Mrs. Worrell quickly had a change of heart. She immediately brought the young woman back to Knoll Park. Though Mrs. Worrell was somewhat suspicious about Mary's intentions, she ultimately decided to trust Mary after her brief emotional display. Mrs. Worrell's choice reflects our natural tendency to believe other people. Even when there are signs of deception, humans usually choose trust over skepticism. This is the basis of the truth default theory developed by Professor Tim Levine of the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Levine has done extensive research in deception and lie detection. Through this work, he concluded that most people rely on the assumption that others are being honest with them in order to communicate effectively. We are hardwired to trust others because that is the only way for a civilized society to function. If we constantly assumed that we were being lied to, we would never have a productive conversation. Most of the time, people are honest, and our tendency to trust people works out in our favor. Unfortunately for the Worrells, and soon for the rest of the town of Almondsbury, Mary was the one person they really shouldn't have believed. Mrs. Worrell had just brought an imposter into her house, and one who would lie over and over again in order to stay. Coming up, with the help of a mysterious stranger who claims to understand her story, Mary Wilcox officially becomes known as Princess Caribou. Hi everyone, it's Alastair, and I have some very exciting news to share. I'm hosting a new podcast original series that exposes the dark, disturbing, and deadly side of medicine. It's called Medical Murders, and I think you're really going to like it. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join me as I examine the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. On Medical Murders, we'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, 
or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow my new series, Medical Murders, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In early April of 1817, 26-year-old Mary Wilcox showed up in the English village of Almondsbury with a plan to beg for money as a mysterious foreign drifter. After successfully performing her ruse, Mary received pity from Mrs. Worrell, who brought Mary into her home. When Mr. Worrell saw his wife walk through their front door with Mary, he was not pleased. He was far more skeptical of the beggar than Mrs. Worrell and did not want a stranger living in his house. Mr. Worrell decided to take Mary to the mayor to see if someone with more authority could force some information out of her. While in the presence of the mayor, another person who could have easily arrested her for vagrancy, Mary kept up her act. She babbled a bit in her made-up language, saying the word caribou and pointing to herself. Unable to ascertain anything about the young woman's history or homeland, the mayor had her committed to the local hospital. This was a fairly standard practice at the time. If the authorities came across a vagrant who they did not want to arrest, they would often have that person hospitalized instead. As a result, St. Peter's Hospital was likely dirty and overcrowded. Despite her undesirable surroundings, Mary remained steadfast in her act. When offered a room with a bed, she slept on the floor and refused all sorts of food and drink, even though it took a toll on her health. After spending so much time on the road throughout her adolescence, Mary was used to being hungry, and she chose to commit to her character rather than nourish her body. The doctors told their friends about their mysterious new patient, and gentlemen from all over town started coming to visit Mary, eager to be the first to figure out who she was. When Mrs. Worrell came to see Mary after a week, she was appalled at the condition of the hospital. She couldn't stand the thought of Mary spending all of her time in such a place, so she had the young woman discharged. However, the Worrells were still wary of the stranger in their home, so they invited Mary to stay at Mr. Worrell's nearby office in Bristol under the care of a housekeeper. The couple then committed themselves to finding out who the young woman was. Mrs. Worrell had grown fond of Mary and wanted to help her get back home. The Worrells sent throngs of people to the office to examine Mary. Language experts, foreigners, and friends all spent time with a woman who seemed to call herself Caribou, and none of them managed to learn anything new about her. The Worrells' mysterious guest was quickly becoming the talk of the town, and everyone was eager to discover the young woman's origins. The mystery was finally solved when Mrs. Worrell introduced Mary to a Portuguese sailor named Manuel Enesso, and he claimed to understand her. Mary knew she could use him to her advantage. She sat down with Manuel and spoke to him in her made-up language, holding back laughter as the sailor nodded in feigned understanding throughout their conversation. Once Mary felt she had spewed enough balderdash, she sat back in her chair and clasped her hands, pleased with her performance. And Manuel seemed satisfied too. According to what he told the Worrells, Caribou was no common woman. 
she was, in fact, a princess from the island of Javusu. Princess Caribou's father was Chinese and her mother was Malay. Sadly, they had both been killed years prior in a war between the Malays and a people called the Bugus, who Manuel said were cannibals. One day, while Princess Caribou was taking a stroll, pirates descended upon her garden. They tied her up and abducted her from Javusu, holding her and her servants captive on their ship. As she was kept below deck and often confined to her bed, she rarely saw the various ports they visited, so she could not explain where exactly she had been. She somehow knew, however, when they reached the Bristol Channel. By then, Princess Caribou had been a prisoner for months. She'd had enough. She jumped ship in the channel and swam all the way to shore. Princess Caribou had been wearing a fine dress and shawl made of gold when she was kidnapped. Once she reached town, she exchanged them for some food and the black clothing they had found her in. Princess Caribou had been begging on the streets for six weeks before turning up to the cobblers, meaning that she had been away from home for roughly half a year. The Worrells were astounded by Mary's story and believed at once that she was Princess Caribou as she'd claimed. They praised the princess for her bravery and immediately took her back to live with them at Knoll Park. We will never know why Manuel Anesso pretended to translate for Mary and made up the story of Princess Caribou. Perhaps he was being kind, trying to help someone find a place in high society who never would have ended up there otherwise. Or he may have actually believed the story he was telling. Mary had obviously encouraged him, indicating that he was doing the right thing by smiling at him as he feigned comprehension. There's also a chance that Mary herself believed her own deception. Mary had transformed into plenty of characters before she became Princess Caribou, adding more and more elements to each disguise she took on. In 1891, a German physician named Anton Delbruck coined the term Pseudologia Fantastica. It described patients who told extravagant untruths and in whom outright lies and self-delusions got mixed up. In other words, these patients weren't able to tell the difference between something they'd made up and something they believed was real but wasn't. While Mary wasn't diagnosed with Pseudologia Fantastica, the details we know about her life suggest she would be a prime candidate for it. According to a 2017 review of this phenomenon from Case Reports in Psychiatry, 40% of patients with Pseudologia Fantastica have dealt with brain injuries or central nervous system illnesses, and 50% of patients have been hospitalized multiple times in different institutions, sometimes with fake illnesses. Mary's relentless commitment to the character of Caribou suggests that, on some level, she may have actually believed that she was the princess from Javusu. The servants who slept in the same quarters as Mary never once heard her speak anything other than her own language, even when she talked in her sleep. She also never wavered with regards to the diet or the prayer schedule that she kept. Whether or not Mary believed her own lies will always be a mystery, but the rest of the town was absolutely convinced that they had a princess in their midst. Once they knew their house guest was a royal, the Worrells were eager to show her off. 
Every week, they brought more and more people to see the princess, and she never failed to put on a show. She danced exotically for their guests and said her prayers loudly on the roof of the house. She also somehow proved to be both a skilled fencer and archer, even making her own homemade bow and arrows to use despite having no experience with either sport. In addition, Princess Caribou often walked around with a gong on her back and a tambourine in her hand, sounding them whenever she felt like it. Her observers delighted in inventing reasons for her eccentric behavior, such as telling each other that this was how her people traditionally dressed when preparing for war. Who the princess planned to battle while she leisurely traipsed the halls of Knoll Park never factored into their story. Princess Caribou's outlandish behavior and regal title drew so many civilians to the Worrell's property that the press soon caught wind of it. Intrigued, reporters wrote aggrandizing descriptions of her that reached neighboring towns. When Mary discovered that some of her new visitors were reporters, she worried that she was getting too much attention. The more coverage she got from the press, the more risky her scheme became. Someone from her past might recognize her from within the pages of the newspaper and reveal her true nature to the Worrells, forcing her to give up her act. As it turns out, Mary was right to be concerned. 26-year-old Mary had been living at Knoll Park for about two months when her former landlord, Mrs. Neal, read a newspaper article detailing the extraordinary tale of Princess Caribou. Mrs. Neal couldn't help but laugh. She recognized the ruse all too well. This exotic woman described in the Bristol Journal with her dark hair, strange language, and makeshift turban was no princess at all. She was a poor woman named Mary Wilcox, and she used that disguise to entice people into giving her cash. Mrs. Neal put down her paper and shook her head. She wasn't going to let Mary get away with this scam any longer. Coming up, Mrs. Neal plans to expose Mary's true identity. Now, back to the story. In June of 1817, 26-year-old Mary Wilcox had garnered the county of Gloucestershire's attention by pretending to be a kidnapped foreign princess named Caribou just months after arriving on a local cobbler's doorstep. At first, Mary relished her popularity, thrilled that her masquerade had fooled so many people. But her excitement was short-lived. When the tale of the princess taking refuge in Almondsbury reached the nearby city of Bristol, Mary's former landlord, Mrs. Neal, called upon a friend of hers in Almondsbury, Mr. Mortimer. She confided that Mary had been a resident of her boarding house only a few months prior. There was no doubt in her mind that Mary was an imposter. When Mr. Mortimer pressed for details, Mrs. Neal perfectly described Mary's looks and voice, adding that she had spotted Mary wearing a turban and speaking in a fake language while roaming the streets of Bristol. Mr. Mortimer was stunned and promptly passed the tip about Mary's fraudulence to Mrs. Worrell. He then introduced her to Mrs. Neal, who recounted her story once again. Mrs. Worrell was angered by the lie and formed a plan to confront Mary with the help of Mrs. Neal. The next morning, Mrs. Worrell was friendly with the imposter. She told Caribou that they needed to go into Bristol that afternoon so that the painter could put the finishing touches on Princess Caribou's portrait. 
They had gone to the painter's residence several times before, so Mary didn't suspect that anything was awry. But when they reached Bristol, they didn't visit the painter. Instead, Mrs. Worrell took Mary to Mr. Mortimer's residence, where Mrs. Neal would join them. As their stagecoach pulled up, Mary began to sweat. She worried that she had been exposed, but said nothing. As Mrs. Worrell led Mary into Mr. Mortimer's, she desperately tried to think of a way to explain what she'd done. But there was no time to fabricate a lie that could get her out of this one. Mrs. Worrell sat Mary down in a room alone and asked their driver to keep an eye on her. Then she went to have a conversation with Mrs. Neal in another part of the house, leaving Mary to panic alone. When Mrs. Worrell returned, Mary immediately started wailing in her fake language, seemingly begging for Mrs. Worrell to take pity on her. Mrs. Worrell glared at Mary, irritated by her crocodile tears. She told Mary that if she didn't calm down, she would bring Mrs. Neal into the room and force Mary to explain herself in front of her. The shame of the potential encounter was too much for Mary to bear, and she broke down again crying for real this time. She admitted, in English, that she was not Princess Caribou. But first, she offered another lie. She said she had spent months in Bombay and an island in the Indian Ocean. When Mr. Mortimer, who had traveled to Bombay, quizzed her on the region, it was quickly proven that she was trying to deceive them. Eventually, she was forced to admit that she was, in fact, Mary Wilcox, a poor girl from Witheridge. Mrs. Worrell sat down, overwhelmed with the reality of her situation. After taking a few minutes to think, she asked Mary to detail her entire history from birth until she wound up in Almondsbury. Mrs. Worrell said she would have friends check up on Mary's accounts, and if they proved that Mary had told the truth, she would help send Mary abroad to Philadelphia. It was a kind gesture on Mrs. Worrell's part, but not an entirely unselfish one. She needed to get Mary as far away from her family as possible. Once the story got out that Princess Caribou was an imposter, her family might be ridiculed and shamed for taking the young woman in. On the other hand, Caribou had brought fame to the Worrell family, and many witnesses were impressed by the young woman's ability to fake an exotic persona. It was understandable that the Worrells had been duped. Mary did as she was told, and on the coach ride back to Almondsbury, she recounted the events of her life. Mrs. Worrell took copious notes and warned Mary that she was going to send friends all over the country to confirm her story. So Mary shared honestly. On their arrival in town, Mrs. Worrell sent Mary to live with Mr. Mortimer, who agreed to watch the young woman. Meanwhile, Mrs. Worrell waited for her friends to find out if Mary had been telling the truth this time. The Worrells even sent people to Witheridge, demanding written confirmation of Mary's history from Mary's own parents. They had friends travel to London, where they interviewed the Matthews, the Starlings, and the Foundling Hospital about Mary. One of their friends even managed to come in contact with the Wheelwright's son who had been traveling with Mary, corroborating her narrative from that time. While Mrs. Worrell's messengers interviewed Mary's extended network all over England, news of Princess Caribou's impostorship spread like wildfire. 
The same papers that appraised the exotic Princess Caribou now published corrections, explaining that they too had been fooled by Mary Wilcox. But instead of admonishing Mary for her lies, the papers chose once again to champion the young woman. They described Mary as a working-class heroine, one who exposed the vanity of high society with an unbelievably clever scheme. When they weren't applauding Mary, members of the press used their columns to ridicule the members of the upper class who had visited Princess Caribou and claimed to understand her. Several satirical pieces were published wherein the writers concocted insane, intricate theories about Princess Caribou's origins, making fun of the so-called experts who had been fooled. While newspaper stories circulated and Mrs. Worrell's friends traveled throughout England, Mary stayed at Mr. Mortimer's house, greeting visitors of all classes and creeds who were eager to speak with an imposter. Some of these people praised her for her actions, while others condemned her. A selected few pitied the poor woman, claiming that while they could not uphold her choice to lie, they still understood why she felt she had to. By late June, Mrs. Worrell collected the last of the correspondences from her friends, confirming that Mary had, in fact, told the truth. On June 28, 1817, Mrs. Worrell placed Mary under the care of three devoutly religious women and shipped them all off to Philadelphia. She hoped that the pious women would keep an eye on Mary throughout the long journey and influence her to become a better person abroad. As she watched the ship pull away from the dock, Mrs. Worrell couldn't help but feel a pang of sadness within her heart. Despite everything the young woman had done to deceive her, Mrs. Worrell was still going to miss Mary. When Mary arrived in America, she was greeted by an enthusiastic crowd full of people who were desperate to meet Princess Caribou. Mary was shocked. Apparently, news of the kidnapped princess had reached American shores, but the truth of who she really was only made her more famous. Mary slipped right back into character and began giving performances as Princess Caribou at places like Philadelphia's Washington Hall. She was actually earning a living thanks to her masquerade. Unfortunately, Mary's career as an entertainer was short-lived. Soon, spectators became tired of Princess Caribou. Even though the public's interest had begun to wane, Mary still tried to keep up her charade wherever she could. In November of 1817, she wrote a letter to Mrs. Worrell, telling her that she had created an act where she performed as Princess Caribou and complained about the burden of dealing with her newfound celebrity. In 1824, Mary returned to England and gave several performances as Princess Caribou in London, Bristol, and Bath. Sadly, these attempts at performance proved unsuccessful as well. She had once been revered for her ability to invent a language and embody a character. Now, she was just another washed-up act, clinging to a failed dream. In 1828, 37-year-old Mary settled in Bristol, taking up residence in a town called Bedminster, about 10 miles south of Almondsbury. Shortly after her arrival, she met a man named Richard Baker. Richard understood that Mary had put her rocky past behind her, and after a brief courtship, the two got married. In 1829, they had a daughter named Marianne, 
and began living a quiet life as a family of three. Mary's turn toward an honest existence doesn't necessarily mean that she suddenly became a different person. It's more likely that she grew tired of always pretending to be someone else. In his TEDx talk on imposters, psychology researcher and professor Matthew Hornsey asserts that living a double life is a long, lonely, and difficult path. To prove his point, Matthew cites a 1998 study about the impact of social stigmas and self-esteem. In this study, psychologists Deborah E. S. Frabel, Linda Platt, and Steve Huey sought to see whether living with a visible stigma negatively affected one's self-esteem more or less than living with an invisible stigma. They tracked a group of undergraduate students, all of whom were dealing with some sort of stigma, which is defined as a characteristic that others tend to view with negative stereotypes. Some students were afflicted by a visible stigma, such as a physical disability. Others had stigmas that could be concealed, like a mental illness or family with lower income status. The researchers discovered that concealable stigmas had a much more negative effect on the subject's self-esteem perhaps because concealing these stigmas pressured them into living a double life. People tend to be happier when they don't have to hide any part of themselves. They're less stressed, they're more confident, and they're more likely to live an integrated life full of meaningful relationships. Similarly, it seems that it was only once Mary Wilcox gave up her act for good that she was able to defeat her restless nature. She formed a family, one who knew and accepted her for who she truly was, and finally settled down. Mary stayed in Bedminster for the rest of her life. Combining the knowledge she gained from multiple hospital stays and a brief residency with a fishmonger back in 1813, Mary secured a job selling leeches to the Bristol Infirmary. She reportedly held on to that position until she was too old to work. On December 24th, 1864, 73-year-old Mary passed away. Though her official cause of death is unknown, it is speculated that she suffered a heart attack. Mary was buried in an unmarked plot in Bristol's Hebron Road burial ground. Her daughter Mary Ann reportedly continued on with her mother's business, selling leeches to the infirmary until her death in 1900. Though Mary's grave is unmarked, Plenty of tributes exist to Princess Caribou, ensuring that her legacy will live on. In Britain, many people still view her as an eccentric heroine who took a much-needed stand against the upper class. Around the world, people are entertained by her memorable tale. In 1994, a film called Princess Caribou, starring Phoebe Cates in the titular role, was released to decent reviews. There have also been stage adaptations of Mary's story, such as a musical production called Princess Caribou, which opened in London in 2016. In a touching gesture to one of their most unique residents, the city of Bristol placed a blue plaque outside Mary's home in Bedminster in March of 2006. Today, on the exterior of 11 Princess Street, there lies a permanent tribute to Princess Caribou, and more importantly, to Mary Wilcox, the restless, strange, captivating woman who invented her. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 
For more information on Mary Wilcox, amongst the many sources we used, we found Caribou, a narrative of a singular imposition by John Matthew Gutch, and Bristol's Princess Caribou by Brian Horton, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artists was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Killer Nurses Deranged Doctors Mad Scientists don't forget to subscribe to my new podcast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. I'm so proud of this show and can't wait for you to check it out. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.